0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course on the Bloomberg.
1: We're going to be talking about the markets through the day. Of course, a lift to this equity market this morning off the back of some comments from a Chinese official who said Should the I get following. Out of cash? We're going to ask Max Kenner in just a moment. Okay, thank you. Let me I think just you should have done this. that about let, a me year just, ago. let me just get to the quote <laughs> of the morning, shall we, from a Chinese official saying the following. In the past two weeks, top negotiators had serious constructive discussions and agreed to remove additional tariffs in phrases as progress is made on the agreement. If China-U.S. reach a phase one deal, both sides should roll back existing additional tariffs. I should emphasize here, any agreement on tariff rollback is ultimately still conditional on a phase one deal being reached. And Tom, a phase one deal still hasn't been agreed to. Exactly.
0: And what is so critical here, and I read carefully the comments, again, these comments, folks, are not managed or massaged, they're really out of Beijing and straightforward. The Chinese are looking sequential. They're looking at this not as a one-off tariff rollback, but they verbiage a sequential rollback and i would suggest the americans seem to be a long way from that
1: no comment from the president yet no comment from this administration here in the united states i did mention max captain's name so let's bring him in shall we hsbc's multi-asset strategist he joins us here in new york city good morning to you max good morning gonna get to your underway equity call which i think should be the focus of this conversation in just a moment but first of all your interpretation of what's happening here with the negotiations between the u.s and China we still haven't negotiated a phase
2: one agreement yet yeah. this market is behaving as if we have here we go I mean you just mentioned it when you say uh, good morning there's three people doing the happy talk I'm guessing I was invited to do the sort of opposite and I don't think you, you're gonna invite a German strategist to hear <laughs> some happy talk really um, so there we go I'm gonna be a b- bit more dismal in the next yes. next couple of minutes um, look, um, the only thing really I understood from what you were reading out loud is about 27 subjunctives and ifs and ifs and ifs, right? So the, the problem for me is, I mean, th- there's so many things that really have to happen and that have to go seamlessly, really, really smoothly until I can say, okay, now that, that price level where we are right now is justified, and bear in mind, that means, OK, that price level now is justified. That doesn't mean, OK, now if I got $100 in cash, that means I need to put more money into equities. It just means, OK, fine, this price level is justified. It's not new news, right? It's not. It's just confirming news. I'm not look, I'm not uh, sort of advocating an utterly bearish stance. I think pretty much in six months time, we're probably going to sit around this beautiful table here uh, and, and probably going to be plus minus zero in equities. So pro- probably pretty range-bound. But this is an environment where you're saying, look, either tails are probably too extreme, and you have to continue to sell the rally. You have to continue buying the dip. Your
1: message so far sounds like the conditions needed for a short squeeze are very different to the conditions needed for a sustainable rally into yeah. 2020. You went underweight equities, I believe, on Monday. Yes.
2: What's the pushback been so far? Um, I think so far one of our clients has, has agreed with me which kind of, you know, is, is first pretty fun, um, and, and second, um, that's the one really where you see, oh, this is, this is getting quite worrisome. Because, you know, if, if you think about 2019, if we use the sort of 2019 narrative to look into 2020, effectively 2019 can be summed up in one sentence. You can say, look, fundamentally, we all want to be much more bearish. The problem is the guy left and right of me thinks the same. Right. So positioning is pretty light. It's if anything, if you look at equities, if you look at high yield and risk assets in general, if you look at some of our metrics, we look at betas. it's it's an unloved rally. It's,
3: well, it's unloved, yeah. but it's supported by the low interest rate environment. There we are. Yep. And if there is no trade deal, you'll see yep. yields go back down.
2: There we go. Yep. Won't
3: that be supportive of equities? L-
2: Lisa, but that, that is exactly the point. And that's why I'm so skeptical about the rally right now. Because... So there's a lot of talk now and there has been a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks. Oh, this is now rotation into value. This is rotation out of duration into cyclical sectors in equities, for example. Um, the problem, and, and, and much of that hinges on the sort of narrative that you're saying financial conditions over the last 12 months have loosened so much and have become so much easier yeah. because of this shift in, in monetary policy really worldwide. The problem, however, is just like you said, if that continues, obviously yields will continue to spike. And that means financial conditions will tighten. So, so if, you know what I mean, right? Your initial, your initial argument, why you were bullish, is at wow. some point you're you're hitting a cap, right? You'll you'll inevitably will yeah. be hitting a cap. Max,
0: we gotta interrupt. John, why don't you lead us with a real move that we see in Sterling? That GDP forecast out of the Bank of England is just
1: a cable rolling over, so Sterling a little bit softer here, down two tenths of 1% at 128.27. Max Kentner of HSBC just talking about monetary policy easing. I believe we have Guy Johnson with us over in London because, Guy, a Bank of England decision that was set to be an absolute snooze just got a little bit more interesting with two policymakers. Did they just vote for a rate cut?
4: Yeah. Um, I think Saunders, Michael Saunders, was, was largely expected by the market. There's been a lot of chat about the fact uh, that he has completely turned tail from being a hawk to being a dove, uh, and as a result of which he has voted for a cut. The surprise really, I think, is, is Haskell. Uh, and I think that is where the market has been caught on the hop here. So we have two members of the MPC voting for a cut this time round. We've also seen the bank, John, significantly downgrade its GDP forecast, uh, 1.2 versus 1.3 this year, 2021, 1. Uh, versus 2.3. Um, there is talk of the fact that global risks are a big part of this. Uh, actually, what they're basing this downgrade on is what is happening outside the U.K. largely. Some of it is inside the U.K., but a lot of it is outside the U.K. Uh, and they are now saying that uh, basically they're looking at a situation where they right. are anticipating that it's going to get more difficult from here, Tom.
0: Guy Johnson, what is the importance of Jonathan Haskell and Michael Saunders saying, let's get going Let's cut the rates now. Define that significance, particularly going to the December 12th election.
4: Well, you think about it, Tom, given the uncertainty that exists currently in the United Kingdom to make this call pre-the election and pre-the Brexit story actually turning out to be a reality, uh, I think is, a, is, a, is quite a big call. Uh, and as I say, I think this is largely based on what is happening externally to the UK. The UK is a small, open economy. You guys are just talking about what was happening with the trade story with Max. Uh, the UK is being affected by this. And that is why the data are, are, are starting to slow, they believe. And that is why the forecasts have been cut. So this is, this is in relation to what is happening, not with Brexit and not with the election, but what's happening with the global macro economy, Tom.
1: Hey, Guy, always great to catch up with you to get your thoughts. For anyone just tuned, and again, the Bank of England leaving interest rates unchanged, but two policymakers out of the nine actually voting for a rate cut. The vote seven to two. Max Kettner, your view on that? I think most people just assumed no change. Vote nine zero
2: going into an election next month. Yeah. Look, if, if I put it into an investment context, into okay, what's what's the trade here? Um, the problem is for me, obviously, if if I have a sort of three to six month view, and in our context, it's really about guilt, it's about UK equities. Um, the problem is I don't want to speculate only on politics. So I, I'm, I'm sort of being the, the, the maximum coward and sh- shying away from any taking any active stance re- there really. Because you know I might be horribly wrong or this might be a career but breaker. What's
3: right? interesting to me is that every central bank is yeah. saying that they're doing an action or considering because of what's happening globally.
2: There we go. Well, so that, who are that, they blaming? That, that basically tells you central bankers are now reacting to something that they actually don't have under control, right? So they're, they're reacting to sort of global growth, to global phenomena. If, if we're talking about, let's say, old school stereotype textbook uh, monetary policy, Phillips curve and all that gibberish, right? <laughs> you, you, you basically then say... Yes, that we're calling it gibberish now. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, fair, you, you can still believe in that, but meh, there we go. Um, the, 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 thing, the thing for me is, look, um, the problem there is you see a lot of central banks, including the Fed, responding to financial conditions now, to something that is out of their control. Max Kettner, got to leave it there. Always great to catch Wonderful up. Thank you.
1: HSBC's multi-asset strategist joining us here in New York City, Tom.
0: John, CIBC Bank is out of Toronto. It is the old Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, and very quietly over the decades, they put together an absolutely first-rate team, uh, including Benjamin Tall, who is the number one guy I know on the self-employed in America. He is encyclopedic mm-hmm. on this part-time, full-time debate. And it's wonderful when someone t- from Toronto darkens the door here so we can crowbar Leafs tickets out of them.
1: Oh, is that what he's here that, for? That's the only reason he's here is to hand me the Leafs tickets. Is that the basketball team in Toronto? No, that
0: is very good. Thank Leafs you. Canadians would be <laughs> what we're asking for,
1: John, I'm after this joking. year. I'm joking. Biffan Rye joining us now. CIBC Capital Markets Senior Macro Strategist. Good morning to you, Biffan. Good morning. Should we begin with that Bank of England rate decision? Personally, I thought this was going to be a total snooze right. going into the election next month. I guess we were wrong. Two people on the MPC voting for a rate cut. They didn't get it. The vote was 7-2. to two. Mm-hmm. Your reaction?
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, I wasn't surprised by the two dissenters because, again, if you pay attention to what Saunders and, uh, and Vlay have been saying for their, the last uh, several months, it certainly seemed like they were more, uh, more sympathetic towards a rate cut going forward. Uh, The other thing that kind of surprised me was the fact that they kept in the the language around limited and gradual rate hikes going forward. I guess they didn't want to tip the boat too much uh, during an election campaign. I'm
3: trying to understand where the global risks are that everyone keeps talking about. If it's not necessarily in Europe, which seems to be getting better, Mm -hmm. if it's not coming from the US, not coming from the UK with Brexit. Right. Where is it coming from?
5: Uh, it's the trade talks. I mean, it's between the U.S. and China, and what I think is underappreciated between the U.S. and the EU. Uh, and nobody ever talks about the U.S. and the EU. But we just had tariffs launched on uh, on Airbus last. Uh, Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I should say. And we've also got the big decision coming on autos. Nobody talks about that, but that's a significant macro risk that we need to pay attention to.
1: What are your thoughts on that at the moment? I caught up with Larry Kudlow, the National Economic Council director last Friday, and he always points to the weakness coming out of Europe weighing on the US economy. Do you think Mm -hmm. there's an acknowledgement from the US side that actually going after Europe at this point Mm -hmm. might not be a great decision?
5: I think there is uh, some sympathy to, to, you know, potentially opening the door towards talks with the EU. I mean, uh, at the same time, you don't want to see a a new front open on the trade war. Between uh, the US and, uh, and the EU uh, and certainly if, you know taking the comments that we heard from Wilbur Ross uh, last week it certainly seems like they're, they're willing to uh, push out the the for for coming to decision on tariffs
1: the Chinese Ministry of Commerce speaking overnight saying that the Chinese in the United States have agreed on tariff rollback but mm-hmm. with a massive asterisk right they've agreed on it if there's a phase one deal that they can agree to and right now there isn't a phase one deal to agree to right I have a question for you that I think is going to be increasingly an important one if we do get tariff rollback. Is the boost to economic activity from tariffs coming off Mm -hmm. proportional to the damage done from tariffs going on? How should we be thinking about that at the moment?
5: Right. I mean, if we're talking about the real economy, I don't think so. I think there are other structural headwinds towards business investment coming online. I mean, we are in a new trade regime. We didn't have to deal with uh, a tariff war between two largest economies uh, in the past. This is a new regime that businesses has to be, have to become accustomed to, and certainly, if we do see some tariff rollbacks, you might see some beneficiaries uh, being, you know, more so the U.S. consumer as opposed to U.S. businesses. I think it's a new uh, path for them to, to wade through.
0: Bippen and I are with us with CIBC uh, World Markets. Bippin, uh, yen is always a proxy for global Wall Street. of correlation mm-hmm. and a safe haven. Well, does that math work right now? And right now, a 109.15. Grinding, but it has been a weaker yen. Is that a healthy signal of all clear?
5: For the time being, uh, I would say yes. It's probably conducive towards uh, risk appetite being uh, on the rebound. And again, it's it's much more of a, a global liquidity story and a positive sentiment story potentially from the U.S. But it's a well-behaved
0: time series. It's grinding. Mm-hmm. I'll get that. But there's right. a persistency yeah. to this yen weakness. What does that signal?
5: Uh, it signals to me that, uh, again, rate divergence between the U.S. and Japan is pretty much minimal right now compared to where we've seen in the past. I mean, if we're talking about Dalyan, we have to talk about where the policy settings are in the United States versus where they are in Japan. Uh, and, again, if you do see a meaningful divergence, then that's when you get the direction, directional breakout. But this is Paris. this is
0: critical. What, what Pippen just said, John, we were talking about this in the break policy divergence there doesn't seem to be any they're all reacting to what imf led on which is lower gdp growth now, this has been a big
1: question though for fx markets over the last couple of years bipan mm-hmm. as to whether rate dif- rate differentials matter and to what degree rate differentials matter for foreign exchange
5: Absolutely. In a world where central, yeah. bankers, uh, central banks are increasing asset purchases and where balance sheets are exorbitantly large, and when they're dominant in the market, rate divergences yeah. will matter. And, and
0: Lisa, this was John Lipsky's question to Charles Evans yesterday on the correlation of all these central bank messages that we're getting.
3: Well, and there's a question, the low inflation environment. Have we underestimated how persistent and how long-lasting it'll be? And the European Commission today cutting its euro area growth and inflation outlook, despite some of the better than expected data we've gotten out of Germany mm-hmm. uh, with the P do you think they're right?
5: Yeah, I do think so. And I, I don't think central bankers have been held accountable for, for the fact they've been missing their inflation targets for the last decade. I, I do think there's a, there's a problem with inflation targeting What's
3: right What's behind that?
5: It, I mean, it, it might be that the policy is outdated. It might be that the mandate needs to be updated to, to reflect a different inflation mandate. Or maybe they should be targeting something else. Central bankers have become very, very good over the past couple of decades at targeting 2% inflation. Almost too good to the point where inflation volatility is minimal now. Right, so maybe there's something else that central bankers should be looking at going forward. Well,
3: do, wh- when you talk about the European uh, outlook right now, they're saying that the worst is to come. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that, too, that the worst for the European economy is to come perhaps next year?
5: It, it's a distinct possibility because we haven't seen any sort of fiscal or movement towards fiscal stimulus from some of the larger economies that have the space. How will that translate in, in markets? Uh, at this point... Uh, you know, for, in my space, we still see the euro-dollar range bound, and that's predominantly because, again, U.S. manufacturing is is somewhat on the on the decline as well, and there is some risk that could percolate into the consumer and labor sectors. Germany on the brink of recession, arguably for some people already in one, the DAX
1: is up 26% (laughs) through 2019. Right. How do you reconcile some of these things right now?
5: Uh, Again, it's a liquidity story. I mean, if you have this massive amount of liquidity in the system, if you have all this cash in the system, it's got to go somewhere. And for some people, even if there is a slowdown in the global economy, I want to put my cash into something that's yielding something positive, at least. But
0: isn't it the X axis? Not only the observation of the wall of money out there, but Mm. lower for longer has a new definition. Right going into the new year. Am I right on that?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's, there's very little... I mean, uh, when you talk about monetary policy, you're effectively pushing on a string right now. I mean, there's only so much that the ECB can do. It's not a story of credit supply. It's a story of credit demand. And right now, there's no credit demand in the Eurozone. And that's driven by, uh, by fiscal growth or fiscal stimulus. We had Max Kettner of
1: HSBC on the program around about 55 minutes ago, who was pushing back quite strongly mm. against some of this enthusiasm for risk assets at the moment. Would you do the same thing?
5: At this point, no. I, I'm still playing the liquidity story. I still do think that you know, even if you have, you're you in a global environment where the economy's not doing so well, you've got enough liquidity out there. It, it seems like uh, this it, lower for longer environment's going to last. I'm not so concerned about an equity meltdown at this point.
3: So right now we are seeing a sell-off in bonds, in particular uh, in U.S. 10-year treasuries. Would right. you be a buyer here?
5: At this point, I mean, I'd have to look at the technical level, but yeah, I'd, I'd look at potentially uh, at buying U.S. bonds. Really,
1: 190 on a 10-year gets it done. Does yeah. that bring the buy-in back we're, in?
5: We're in a new regime now. I, the I do think I do think the, the risks are skewed towards uh, the Fed uh, potentially easing again, although that's not our house view. Our house view is potentially that they're going to uh, stay on hold for the next uh, little while. But again, I am watching employment numbers. I'm watching the uh, the consumer sector in the U.S. And again, if that manufacturing weakness does percolate into that, that's a new regime for the Fed to navigate
3: through. So, nine could be the ceiling and what's the uh what's the floor for 10 oh year my god yields? you're, you're going
5: to make <laughs> me call that <laughs>
3: yeah oh, negative yield. in the u.s you calling that
5: no not at this point no no we need to be in, an, uh, in a recession and we need to see some uh some uh, some other factors we work.
1: found that outside of recessionary conditions through this cycle life below 150 mm-hmm. on a 10 years really quite tough bitpan yeah
5: Did yeah do you agree yeah. I mean, uh, again, it has to be a deep and meaningful recession, I think, to really to move below that 150 mark. But look, look at yields elsewhere. I mean, look at the 10-year yield in Japan. Look at the 10-year yield in, in German boons. I mean, we're, it's very expensive to be short the U.S. dollar for a reason. I can get you a positive yield in France this morning on a
1: 10-year. Just your yield now,
5: 0.005%. Oh, there you
1: go. <laughs> we have a real move this morning, Tom. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One final question very quickly here on Canadian dollar. Mm. Is it a commodity play, or is it just trading off U.S. and U.S. dollar?
5: It's, it's a U.S. dollar play at this point. Yeah, I mean, I c- the commodity yes. play, yeah. it, I think that story is overblown. So but But, I mean, we're, we're bearish on the Canadian dollar. We do right. think the Canadian dollar, dollar catch, you go to 140 okay. by the end of next year.
0: Well, the tickets I want are only original six. You know, I'll take the St. Louis Blues, but just, you know, original. Not the Rangers. Should we do this uh. off-air so instead weak. of on-air? Right. The Rangers are so puny. I don't want to see Rangers leaves in Toronto. Do you? Yeah,
1: but
5: but I'm i right. Know. Yeah.
1: Thank you. What about the Raptors? CIBC Capital oh. Markets Senior uh, Macro Strategist. Is that oh, the ice hockey team?
0: That's Oh, you're killing oh it. I'm oh good, God. aren't I? Yeah. You <laughs> like <She's> that. <me>. And joining us now, folks, here as we look ahead, year ahead 2020, yeah, we'll get to Uber and all that. As a woman who writes with a, stil- uh, a stiletto knife dipped in ink when she writes every day, that would be Shira overday, of course, on technology. We want to get to Uber, uh, we could get to WeWork with that Lex article knife. today. I'm
3: still struggling with that. Isn't you know, a stiletto heel? We could,
0: we could pointy knife, like a wicked pointy heel, okay. like Sarah Jessica Parker's heels, and <laughs> oh, you, you dip them in ink and you write them there. And Shira Oveday with us right now. <laughs> Ms. Sandberg will make an appearance today in our year ahead 2020. There will be smiles and giggles and then not. What's your number one question to the woman running Fortress Zuckerberg?
6: Oh boy, uh, that's a really hard question. You know, I, I think um, th- there was an interview that Katie Couric did with Cheryl yes, Sandberg yes, not yes, long ago, yes. which I think was really exceptionally well done. Why was it well done? Well she didn't let Sheryl Sandberg kind of stick to her talking points. Yeah. Not cut her right off off. but just sort of came back at her with repeated questions but one of the things she asked Sandberg that I thought was a good question is basically how does are you sort of embarrassed to work at Facebook? It was sort of the question like how has this impacted your um, public perception and your your personal perception? Which I think is an interesting question. It's certainly a company that's under fire.
3: Well, another uh, personal perception uh, issue is for Travis Clinic uh, and Uber and what's been going on in the shares there. Uh, you know, I'm just wondering the road forward. Yesterday, another bloodbath after uh, the terrible results. Moving forward, we are seeing a little bit more stable uh, stability today. What do people need to see? What do you need to see to feel more confident about its prospects?
6: More of the same. You're right. I was surprised yesterday that there was this big lockup that lifted, that basically hundreds of millions of shares were available to sell, and I thought it was just going to be an utter stock splat the whole day. And it wasn't as bad as I thought. But going forward, the issue is this company has set a target for itself of a you know pretty significant turnaround in kind of adjusted wildly adjusted profits, and I'm not sure how they get there in two years.
3: Yeah, you know, talking about Travis Clinic and reputational risk. I thought it was really interesting, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund invested $400 million into a new company called Cloud Kitchens, founded by Travis Kalanick. And I'm wondering whether the failures at Uber that are being reflected in markets are not being reflected in sentiment of uh, sort of startup investors, venture capitalists.
6: No, it's interesting. I mean, the the rehabilitation of Travis Kalanick is an interesting story to see that He got pushed out of Uber um, in in this very public way. He kind of quietly left, as you said, started his own company and by all accounts has had a very easy time raising money for what's, it's basically like a a ghost kitchen concept. It's sort of restaurant delivery without the restaurants. Um, And it's an idea that many other investors are pursuing and Uh, apparently his backers believe that he has enough magic to kind of uh, build another company from scratch. This
3: is an important point because I wonder if the narrative of investors demanding profits at this point, more than the growth they once prioritized, if that narrative has gone too far and is not really accurately reflecting the mood at venture capitalist uh, firms, at least not by their actions.
6: It's a good question. I don't know enough about what's happening at the very early stages of company building and investing in those young companies. Look, the fact is that if you're getting a company off the ground, it's probably not going to be profitable. And I think that's the model of venture capital from, you know, day one of that industry. So, uh, th- the question for all of those companies though is is there kind of a sus- an eventually sustainable business, not a yeah. we'll build it and see how it goes.
0: Sure. You've been brilliant, not only linking all the soft touchy-feely stuff, but into the financials as well. You mentioned earlier the hope and prayer of Uber out two years, maybe two and a half years, which in today's age is somewhat foolish. But where is the vector, the mindset of all these te- these non-profitable technology companies. Is it really a five-year plan that they won't admit to?
6: I I mean, I've just been surprised by the change in attitude just in, I I don't know, six months, uh, basically since the spring, probably since Lyft and then Uber went public, that these companies now know or now believe that it's no longer enough to say our, our market opportunity is huge. Uh, yeah, yeah, all we yeah. need to do is capture, you know, 2% of this giant market. When are they going to
0: capture profits? Look, I... And I, I'm not, I'm no, not it's, mean it's gap a, net income. I don't yeah. mean grab dot coddle. I mean the, the illusion of profits at the operating income EBITDA line.
6: So these companies are, now, Uber and Lyft both have said that in two years. Two years. They're going to have adjusted EBITDA adjusted. profits. Community yes. adjusted. Community are, adjusted. Are, are you <laughs> a believer in this?
0: You <laughs> in are no. so cynical.
6: No, I literally Thank this you. morning was See, looking you know, I at.
0: Her. I grilled her like if I interviewed Katie Couric,
6: look at that. Yeah, it's, it's like my <laughs> <laughs> educated. <laughs> yeah, Kirk. you have Katie Couric to me. <laughs> I, I was actually looking this morning before I came on set at Uber's, um, nine pages of uh, adjustments to their gap earnings. And, you know, I'm not new to this, and I couldn't exactly figure out what what was actually happening in some of their segments, and that worries me. I, yeah. I sort of feel like maybe they should just disclose cash in cash
3: out, because well, that would be simpler. Well, Okay, there's the accounting issue, there's the uh, opportunity, and, and how big is it? There's also this idea of winner takes all. That in the dot-com uh, era, sure. yes. there were the companies that survived and those that didn't. It wasn't tier one and then tier two, which is valued a little bit below that top tier. So that's a question here. You know, is there going to be a winner-take-all where, say, Lyft, if they win, they will go on and survive, and Uber will die?
6: I definitely think that in, in some of these categories, there can't be a 1,000 winners. Um, now, whether that means two or three or ten... I'm not sure. My issue about um, the the category that Uber and Lyft occupy, particularly in this kind of transport on-demand transportation, is I just wonder about, is the eventual both size and economics of that market as good as the optimists mm-hmm. think? I, I sort of wonder that no. it's going to look not that dissimilar from the taxi business um, when all is said and done
0: sure over there thank you so much greatly appreciate that what lisa alludes to their folks is a classic research of michael mabusi uh years ago at credit suites uh, on the winner takes all concept translated everyone wants to be amazon yeah every year trots out a year ahead view and it always has interesting conversation from people it's all you know very ted and very thoughtful except paul sweeney this year there's a certain tension to the morning keynote
7: there is uh cheryl sandberg the chief operating officer from facebook uh, sat down earlier this morning uh with bloomberg's carolyn hyde uh let's listen in
1: your work on capitol hill the ongoing dialogue that is happening between not only you and political ads, but those that are buying the political ads, the politicians themselves, the scrutiny upon you in terms of antitrust, in terms of competition, how do you feel you've thus far been able to relate your story, been able to be fully transparent and and offer up answers as quickly as politicians would like them?
0: We're definitely working on offering up those answers. And I think you're right that... The anti-competitive narrative and the competitive narrative is one people are really focused on. And that's because there's real concern about the size and power of tech companies, of us, of Google, of the others, of Apple, of Amazon. There's real concern there. Antitrust legal policy has been really important in the history of America to protect consumers from price gouging from no choice. Mm -hmm. I just think it's hard if you look at our industry to argue or prove that there's anything but a very, very robust choice.
7: That was Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook Chief Operating Officer, sitting with Caroline Hyde at the Bloomberg Year Ahead Conference here in New York. They're still uh, Keep chatting talking, live. Paul,
2: save me. Exactly.
7: <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring in our good friend Max Chapkin from Bloomberg News to get a, a sense of this Facebook story. It's not necessarily about the profits and losses of Facebook right now. The issue really seems to be, and the discussion seems to be, around uh, the role of Facebook uh, within our society, particularly as it relates to uh, the elections, for example. Are they a media company? Should they be held to the same standards? So Max, it's a it's an issue that Facebook and their executives, and we heard from Sheryl Sandberg just now, are really grappling with. What do you, how do you yeah. think that plays out?
8: So, uh, I mean, backing up I mean Facebook financially doing great I mean it's kind of amazing how we have sort of one negative headline after the other for the last couple of years and and the company has performed um, exceedingly well um, that said they've really been on the defensive on these questions of, of their power and and I think you saw that in in the the answer that Cheryl Sandberg just gave where where it's a little bit fuzzy and 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 the you know the uh, we're asking, you know, what what are you going to do about this antitrust conversation? And she's saying, "Eh, never mind." Um, I think yeah. I think the um, their strategy is kind of twofold. Number one. Uh, our service is free. Therefore, we're helping people. Number two, we don't have a monopoly because there are these Chinese companies. And we saw this in Mark Zuckerberg's testimony the other day. Yeah. There are these big Chinese companies. They are really scary. And they are our competitors. You don't want to regulate us because you're just going to create an opportunity okay. for this company, TikTok, which is owned by ByteDance, which is based in Beijing, which is censoring you know, some content. So, th- so that's the strategy. It's sort of partly, you know, we're really great. Partly, you know, watch oh, out stop. for China. That's
0: all we get from Ms. Sandberg. I mean, we just heard it there with Caroline. Hi, so Max, you're out of Yale. I believe somewhere in the vicinity of year two at Yale, they beat into you critical thinking skills. What kind of chief operating officer manager to Miss Sandberg and Mr. Zuckerberg need to salvage this linkage of fabulous financials with a cacophony of issues they've, some would say, created? So I don't know that you can reconcile that. I think that
8: Facebook's... Um Facebook's financials are have accrued from its power, and and what what its critics are going to say is that the reason Facebook is performing as, as well as it's done is it basically has a monopoly on. Um, on on certain kinds of display advertising, that is the the sort of non search ads that you okay, see on your phone. But the
0: monopoly is no one I know uses Facebook anymore. They've all left in droves. Granted, the financial they've are gone great. to Instagram and WhatsApp <laughs> Instagram. and a bunch
8: of which is of course owned by Facebook. And and they've been you know working very hard uh, over there uh, in, in California to you know sort of com-
0: this interview to be like this man no, out no. <laughs> this like touchy feely. He came standard, to the sixth floor for uh, sensitive
7: you know crystals donut. and donuts and yep. candles interview. So, Max, I think one of the issues that they're probably going to have to address pretty soon, like right now, is kind of this upcoming election. What kind of role are they going to play? In terms
0: of political ads. Political ads. It was
7: really really a problem in 2016. What do you think they're going to do here this year? Well, you know, they they came out and said uh,
8: there's a big controversy over over political ads that contain, say, misinformation or misleading statements. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg gave a big speech two weeks ago saying, uh, we believe in free speech. We are not going to fact check political ads. Um, everyone sort of seemed to kind of go along with that, maybe except for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and then, and then we, but we've seen a, a bit of a drumbeat of criticism first from Jack Dorsey, who who kind of came out with a, a, a bit of a troll, I, I'd say, saying, you know, we are we are rejecting all political ads. Is we- that
0: constitutionally legal? I mean, well, how did you, as a technology guru at Bloomberg Business Week? Can media companies say we won't accept political ads so
8: the regulatory regime is there is a there's a you know regulatory regime for for television stations and stuff uh, for, that that does not apply to uh, Facebook um, now Facebook is sort of saying well you know because uh, you know television radio they, they're not fact checking ads we shouldn't right. have to either um, but 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 that those rules don't exist Do you yet.
0: know Paul- and, Max hasn't watched TV in eight years. He streams. He (laughs) streams. We got just a little bit of time of how is this going to play out? Who's right? Political ads with these companies or not political ads with these companies?
8: I think the... the point that, that, that people are uncomfortable with political ads on social media will make is that they're fundamentally different from television ads because television ads are are sort of a oh, mass medium you're killing and me. and, and, <laughs> and social media ads are targeted specific to people. Right. So if so if you put out a misleading television ad, then it's very easy for the media to fact check it. If you put out a uh, social media ad okay. and only
0: show it to a very specific we, we, group we of people... Continue, are, we, unfortunately, we have to continue this. next Schaffigan <laughs> is with us at Bloomberg